Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a topic of interest that we get a lot of feedback on, a lot of questions about, and something that we've talked about here on the podcast before, but uh, it bears repeating, and so I want to introduce you to to some concepts from a friend of mine and from the scriptures. But before we jump into that, let me remind you of some of the great resources that we have over at chrismoles.org, chrismoles.org. Uh, one in particular that I think will be interest, of interest to our podcast listeners is PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site, and it is designed to give resources and help uh, to people helpers, counselors, pastors, advocates, uh, interventionists who are working in the world of domestic abuse prevention and intervention. Uh, it's a low monthly subscription or uh, an annual subscription that will allow you to get access to all of my previous resources. In fact, it contains over 100 hours of video-based content as well as uh, infographics, homework assignments, worksheets. Uh, It is, I believe, the most robust collection of uh, domestic violence prevention and intervention resources from a gospel perspective that's available today. So if you'd be interested in being part of PeaceWorks University, please uh, interact with us on chrismoles.org. Click the PeaceWorks University tab and learn more about that service. All right, let's jump right into today's topic. Uh, We're talking about repentance. Repentance is a topic that comes up quite a bit in our work. And usually it goes something like this. How can I tell if my partner, my parishioner, my counselee, is truly repentant. Uh, obviously, that's that's going to be somewhat subjective. We are going to give you some tools and resources today, uh, but at the end of the day, sometimes we are simply trusting. Uh, but what we want to do at PeaceWorks and what we want to do within the local church is we want our trust to be built upon God's Word, not upon our own subjectivity. That is to say, we want God's Word to guide the conditions by which we're holding people uh, rather than our own feelings. I think this comes up a lot because uh, of, of a couple couple reasons. Number one, in the relationship context, uh, we want to see people repentant. True? I mean, if you're married to someone, you're in a relationship with someone, uh, you want to see them repent and be restored. Uh, you want to see changes in your relationship. So there's a real desire for these statements, right? Statements of, I'm sorry, statements of contrition, even tears, to be genuine. You want that. And so we tend to have, all of us want that. So I think we as people tend to have um, a leaning towards believing, um, engaging, uh, and moving towards restoration. In church-based responses, um, I think it's desirable. Pastors want to see repentance because it, it is evidence of the gospel at work. But unfortunately, as with relationships and in church-based relationships, we often rush that process or 
perhaps we accept um, maybe a cheaper version of repentance. And what I mean by that is um, we see contrition or we see apologies, but we haven't really experienced repentance. I know even when I say the word cheap repentance, that's not an applicable term because there is no such thing. There, you either are repentant or you're not. However, I think what's unfortunate is in our current church culture, especially in the area of abuse, whether it be domestic abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, uh, etc., we seem to accept apologies um, far more quickly uh, than we do demand repentance. So I bring that up to give you this. I want to read a passage of scripture to you. It's something we've talked about before, but then I want to add a layer to it by introducing you to a resource that I think help is helpful in this area. And uh, that passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and this is the filter or the rubric that I use when I talk with folks about repentance. I think it is the most robust example of um, repentance from a, a linear perspective, meaning this is really one of those lists that Paul gives that I think is a great example of what we're looking for in a repentant heart. Now granted Ephesians 4, which you've heard me talk about before, uh, is a, in narrative form probably the best example, right? When is a liar no longer a liar? It's when he's a truther. You know, so repentance is about moving from one to another. It's about transformation and change. But what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is he addresses the repentance of the Corinthians. And here's what he says. Let's start, um, let's start in verse 9, I should say. So chapter 7, starting in verse 9, he says, Now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. Right? So Paul starts there with the contrast. I'm happy. I'm thrilled as a leader, not because you were sorry, right, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us, right? You became sorrowful as God intended. Then he defines that in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see the distinction? So Paul has said there's two kinds of sorrow that we're dealing with, right? The one is godly sorrow, the way God intended you to respond to sin, right? That brings repentance, and it alleviates uh, guilt. It, it, there is no regret. Worldly sorrow, no, it brings death. This faux sorrow, this fake sorrow does not lead to repentance. It brings death. Uh, verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. So here's the fruit of godly sorrow that leads to repentance, all right? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So Paul pulls out all of these what's, right? And these are the things that we're going to be using when we're asking questions, is this individual repentant, right? So Paul says the Corinthian church experienced godly sorrow, led to repentance. I know it was genuine repentance. Why? 
because of what earnestness there was a sincerity to their work there was a sincerity in their life post-repentance it wasn't just I'm sincerely wanting to manipulate the circumstances get you back make things normal no it was a sincere desire to produce fruit post-repentance he says what eagerness to clear yourselves there was a real passion to make things right not simply to push it under the rug it wasn't a mutualizing type of contrition that says well I'm sorry but you should be sorry no it was I have done this I was wrong and I want to work hard to clean the slate to make things right uh, there was an indignation that means like a real anger in not at not at the object not at someone else not at God which we often see in fake repentance right but it was real anger about my sin I'm shocked by what I've done. I'm damaged by what I've done. I'm hurt by what I've done. I'm angry. And that anger is a motivator, right? Not to lash out at others, but to see genuine change. What alarm. I'm shocked. Like the alarm bells are ringing. I never want to go back there. Um, the, the, the siren is sounding, and I, I never want to be um, guilty of that again. What longing. There's a real desire what concern there's a real level of anxiety uh, a good anxiety meaning there's a I don't want to go back to that uh, what readiness to see justice done there's a desire for restitution right so there's a real clear um, you know provision in that passage for us to help us as we evaluate the repentance of others the tool that I've been talking about the thing that I, I think that you as the listener will be interested in and I'm going to include it in the show notes is a small card that was produced by IBCD. It was actually written by my friend Jim Neuheiser and the front side of the card simply has the scripture and description of what we just talked about. Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. What Jim also does that I think is is brilliant is he uses 2 Corinthians 7 as the framework then he pulls out scriptural examples so you also have passages on this little card it's a little uh, index card uh, also have scriptural examples showing you um, ways in which this is lived out or played out in the scriptures so that you not only have um, you not only have the framework in 2 Corinthians 7 but you also have examples from the scripture and then the other side of the card uh, he gives you just um, a nice layout of nine aspects of godly repentance contrasted with worldly repentance. So I want to go through those with you, and then I want to encourage you to visit ibcd.org slash product. Um, and then I'll also put the exact uh, address in the show notes so you can have that. Uh, is your repentance genuine? And here's the list that Jim gives us. Number one, worldly sorrow is self-focused and self-protective. Worldly sorrow is self-focused and self-protected. Godly sorrow is focused on God and other, the other person. The well-being of others is the first priority. Uh, that's super helpful. I could see a pastor or a helper having this card out, asking questions, and just trying to, to measure um, and, and place this individual on a Likert scale, you know, of saying, all right, this is really self-focused. 
what do you hope to see next? Well, I want to get back with my wife. I want to see things back to normal. I want her to stop. I mean, once the finger pointing begins, then I don't think we're dealing with repentance. Uh, number two, worldly sorrow doesn't primarily hate the sin. Worldly sorrow hates the consequences of sin, right? I'm sorry I got caught. Godly sorrow hates the sin itself and accepts the consequences of sin. To me, this is a big one. We, we delineate this, very similar to my friend Leslie Vernick, between willingness and willfulness. Number three, worldly sorrow shifts the blame. Worldly sorrow shifts the blame. Godly sorrow fully accepts responsibility. We talk about this quite a bit, if you've heard me walk through the W model for Men of Peace, which is um, the response to the information phase. The response to learning and educating is, are you taking responsibility? So worldly sorrow shifts the blame, while godly sorrow accepts responsibility. Number four, worldly sorrow resents accountability. And that's really at any level, whether it be you as a people helper or a judge or God, God himself. Uh, worldly sorrow resists accountability, whereas godly sorrow seeks accountability. Now, you have to be a little careful with this one because um, some folks who claim repentance will seek accountability, but they'll seek supportive people, meaning people who will support their agenda. And you as a pastor or an elder, I think one of the things you want to do is you want to be involved in the vetting process, helping them um, by providing good accountability that's going to, you know, continue to observe the fruit of repentance. Worldly sorrow is impatient, demands to be trusted and restored immediately. Does that sound familiar to anybody? So we have somebody coming and they're, they have tears, they're sad, but they come with an agenda. Repentance doesn't come with an agenda other than God's. So this idea of I have to be restored immediately, I have to be trusted, this has to be remedied now, is probably not evidence of godly sorrow. Because godly sorrow, right to contrast it, is patient. Patient. Number six, worldly sorrow focuses on the sins of others, while godly sorrow focuses on our own sin. I mean, no wonder worldly sorrow leads to death. There's no way that worldly sorrow is going to produce genuine repentance if it's always focused on the problems of other people. I mean, in order for you and I to repent or anybody that we're working with to experience true repentance, they have to focus on their own sin, their own struggle. Number seven, worldly sorrow criticizes the disciplinary process. Worldly sorrow criticizes the disciplinary process, meaning that uh, worldly sorrow uh, doesn't accept discipline. Worldly sorrow can, you know, challenges authority. This happens all the time, and whether it's myself or other people doing the work, we're constantly confronted with this. Your version. Pastor Chris or your ver version, Pastor so-and-so, of discipline is not acceptable. I have a better version. That's why, you know, batterers in particular love to create their own responses. Like, I, I know better. Like, I can build my own process better. Or the process that you've got given is unacceptable. And that's why, in particular, this population will hijack counseling, will 
you know, confront. Uh, so, of course, number seven, the challenge, then godly sorrow submits to the process. So there's a submission, which is absolutely necessary in our work. Number eight, the heart remains unchanged and possibly hardened. The heart remains unchanged or hardened, whereas godly sorrow produces a change of heart. And then, of course, number nine, worldly sorrow produces no fruit. Godly sorrow produces fruit. When we talk about fruit of repentance, I would say what we've just talked about is imperative with the Jim's card, uh, the resource that I'm sharing with you today. But also, I think what's important is measurements like we talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, right? Recognizing the transformation, not just by saying, hey, I'm, I'm sorry I lied. That's confession. Repentance is... I no longer want to be a liar, therefore, right, I'm going to practice truth, and eventually I'll be known as a truther. Um, I don't want to be a thief, right, um, is confession. I'm sorry I stole something. Getting a job, working hard, giving money away, being seen giving money away over a certain period of time makes you generous, right? You just don't overnight become a generous person. The same is true in the work that we do. Abuse is not something that's simply confessed and then gone. It it may be that it may be that fast, but we don't we don't get that luxury, right? We have to observe repentance over time, and that's why I think you know Second Corinthians seven is a powerful passage and a helpful passage, especially for pastors and leaders who are struggling with repentance. And so, if you're a pastor or a leader today, let me just encourage you to hold high. Uh, the standard of the scriptures, the standard of repentance that God has given us. It's very tempting to brush over sin, to overlook sin, or to accept contrition or sadness rather than uh, engaging in the process of true repentance. But that is a short-term solution, and as the scripture says, it leads to death. And so I want to encourage you to, to really practice scriptural principles of holding people accountable, uh, taking the um, truth of God's word and applying it to folks and holding a standard by which real change, long-term change, can be seen. Okay, guys, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I appreciate you all. Please go and rate, review, uh, let us know that you are listening, and let us know, uh, pastors in particular, that this is a resource that's available to them. All right, guys, until we see you again, God bless.